Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 29, Luke Eastwood, the Horticulturalist Druid. In this episode, we speak with Luke about growing up gardening in the UK, about the interconnection between neo-Druidry and the Industrial Revolution, and his environmental activism. We also talk about some of his favorite plants, which include the strawberry tree, Arbutus unetto, which is native to Kerry, where he lives now. Also, AC invites herself to Ireland. We also talk about his new book, A Druid Garden. We had a great time in this episode, and I hope you enjoy it. By the way, if you like this podcast, you can support it for just $1 an episode, sometimes even less than that, on Patreon, on our $4 a month tier. We also have several other tiers. You can join our new patron, Bethany Ann, in the Patreon community at patreon.com slash plantcunning. I hope you enjoy the episode. Well, welcome, Luke Eastwood, to the Plant Cutting Podcast. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for being here. Yeah. So you're a uh, a druid, a horticulturist, and an author. Um, And we always like to know what brought you to the plant path? What brought you to this this green way? Mm. Well... Uh, I suppose both my parents had a bit of an interest in plants. Um, my my grandparents did too. They grew stuff. So, yeah, my, my mother's father was really into gardening, actually. I don't think the, uh, my dad's parents as much. So, I mean, I grew up in the 1970s and um, we were pretty broke, I suppose, to start with. Uh, it wasn't till like the 80s that, uh, Britain was sort of kind of coming out of a major recession. So we had a vegetable garden and I used to help a little bit, I suppose. I remember going fruit picking as well, which gets very boring, but um, yeah. <laughs> I get sore back as well. But anyway, so when I was about six or seven, I think we moved to somewhere with a bigger garden. Where was this? Where did you grow up? That, that, that was, well, I started out in Scotland, but I don't really remember that. Um, moved down to Kent and from there to Surrey. And there we had a big garden. And then the farmer who owned this massive wheat field sold off a bit. So my dad bought that field. And we that whole thing was turned over to growing vegetables. Cool. Nice. So he gave me a little piece, a square, but I mean, you know, it started off well enough, but then I think it was that year was like a super drought. 1977 was like one of the hottest years ever. So, I mean, uh, I, I, I've always been a bit of a daydreamer. I was a bit forgetful. So I'd go off to the woods and we had a den in the woods and stuff with tin cans and stuff. And, uh, you know, we'd, we used to go to the sand quarry disused and, which you're not supposed to because it's very dangerous, really. But um, they'd be kind of looking after the vegetables and not, mine would just be slowly dying while I was off <laughs> doing something else. 
but you spent a good amount of time in nature if not in the garden and like the quarry yeah. woods yeah yeah i do remember i remember having to help with digging up the carrots and stuff i had a miniature set of tools like oh you know, and um they're proper you know they were a real thing they weren't like cheapy mm -hmm. you know thin metal or they were the real thing but just small mm -hmm. and I, I remember i really hated shelling peas that's so boring <laughs> yeah you know, you know you'd think i'd hate nature from the sound of it nearly i'm like oh god to do all this awful stuff but you kind of you just absorb things don't you without even realizing that what's kind of going into your head mm -hmm. you know so later on i was at college and they had this um this great big sort of garden it had been some kind of lord what's its house i don't know who it was mm. <laughs> and um you know there was as you have with these very rich aristocrats a big garden which had been let kind of go so i mean they'd built more buildings and things for classrooms and that anyway so it had all got overrun with rhododendrons so i you know i joined in this kind of conservation group to try and fix up the that so that got me really interested in that and then from there i sort of i went to london to university and um i kind of forgot about gardening a lot for a while mm -hmm. and then I moved into this house in uh, northeast London, which had a massive walled garden. And I think that place was, I had the top floor with my friend. Uh -huh. And I think there was four different floors, but nobody gave a, a monkeys about the garden. They just weren't interested. Uh -huh. And I just thought, well, that's a pity because, you know, I, um, you know, when you get a good summer, it's nice to sit out in it and do stuff or whatever. Yeah, so I yeah. started fixing it up. I didn't really remember that much or remember what plants or what, but I started beginning to learn a bit, talking to my mum about it quite a bit. And then it started to kind of overlap with the kind of Druid thing, I suppose, and environmentalism too. Because I, I kind of, I used to live near the Greenpeace headquarters in, uh, in Islington. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, I volunteered to do you know some protests and actions and stuff and uh, you know so as i got more involved in that it's kind of you know the obvious connection between nature and you know environmentalism uh, you know i developed an interest in sort of celtic stuff i suppose growing up and then that got stronger as i kind of realized i didn't want to be a catholic a roman catholic anymore hmm. And, uh, you know, I looked at lots of things. Um, I think if I hadn't become a Druid, I'd probably have become a Taoist. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there's such a, a similarity between those paths, seems to me. Yeah, absolutely. I've also noticed just in your, you're saying that you grew up in a garden and in the woods and then you went to university and then you kind of came back to the garden is another theme of this um, that we've seen when interviewing people is sort of, People who start out with nature, they might meander a little, but they do come back to it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's kind of, there's a saying, you can take the boy out of the bog, but you can't take the bog out of the boy <laughs> oh, or out yeah. of the man or whatever. You know, yeah. and I think that's really true, you know? <laughs> totally. <Yeah. laughs> 
Yeah, that's why I, I very much appreciate and I'm grateful for growing up with in a place where there is woods where I could just be go be in the woods, mm-hmm. you know, all the time when I was a kid. Yeah. The forest is within me, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I mean, you know, that phrase that is said has almost been used as an insult sometimes where, you know, people oh, yeah. in the city kind of, you know, think you're a bit rustic, you know, you're a bit of a simpleton and, uh, you know, um, there's a phrase they use like a bogger you call someone a bogger is a you know they live in a bog there that's a bit of an insult really but uh, you know i think i don't regard it as an insult to be a sort of rustic rural person at all right yeah you know yeah uh i think you know you know if you've grown up in the country and you move to the city you can adapt pretty quickly and you learn that right yeah, but I mean, it's quite funny. Some friends from London came over here to Ireland for, I think it was the twenty-first birthday party, and we went for a walk and um, we went up. There's this kind of cliff walk near where, near the house, and um, you have to go through a field with cows in it. So I just kind of, you know, open the gate and start going through, and they're kind of looking at me and going, oh are those cows or are they bulls and am I going to get killed? <laughs> and I'm just like, they're just cows. Don't worry about it. And uh, in the end, I just sort of threw my hands up in the air and shouted and they all ran off. Mm. But I mean, they, they were actually quite frightened. Yeah. And I, I was just like, oh my God, these people have never seen a cow before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is a little harder to adapt to country living. If you're from the city, you yeah, know, that's and good point. growing, growing plants, growing food has a pretty uh, steep learning curve to it also. No, oh, like- yeah, yeah. Well, I found, you know, I made a lot of mistakes and even now, you know, I, you can mess up, you know, even with experience, you kind of take a gamble on the weather and think, mm, I'm going to put these out. I kind of chance it, I think, you know. And then there's a, a late frost or an unexpected storm, you know. So, you know, there's mistakes you make, like just as a beginner. And then there's mistakes of taking a gamble as well. Yeah. 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 And then, you know, you've lost a whole batch. You have to start again. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if it, you do things early enough, it's not the end of the world. But I mean, it is sad to lose plants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So going back to your background a little bit, what attracted you to Druidry? Okay, well, as I said, I, you know, I, I'd gone to a Catholic school and I took it quite seriously. And, you know, I actually even contemplated the thought of even becoming a priest, but then I realized you have to be single. You can't have <laughs> a girlfriend or a boyfriend even. So the deal breaker. And I, I didn't like the idea of that. I kind of liked the whole Jesus thing. And I'm, you know, I remember they showed us a film about Francis of Assisi and it was very inspiring. And there's this big nature connection with Francis of Assisi, as you you may know. I thought, wow, that's really cool. But then it's just right, you you can't ever have a girlfriend. And I'm like, oh, sad that. That's no good. I'm not not doing this. So that was the end of that. But I still had a, a, you know, feeling that I needed some kind of spiritual life. So, and then I'm thinking, well, what, you know, what can I do? And then 
you know, I had been interested in all the Celtic myths and stuff, but it hadn't really occurred to me that there was actually people who were Druids in this day and age, you know? Yeah. So I looked more into things like uh, Hinduism and Buddhism and also um, Taoism, I mentioned earlier. Actually, my uncle, Uncle Chris, he'd introduced me to, to Buddhism. I went to stay with my uncle and aunt and there he had a copy of the Dharmapada which he got from Japan. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I was really amazed by it. It was, you know, having just known the Bible, you read this and it's completely different. I mean, a lot of it parallels like Jesus' teachings, but the way it's presented is so different. There's no story. It's just like a manual of how to live, really. Yeah. And I, I was really impressed by that. Uh, but there's a funny thing there, actually. My my uncle stole it from a hotel. <laughs> well, that goes against the precepts, doesn't it? Yeah, it does somewhat. But I always think that's quite funny, though. Funny. <laughs> but anyway, I benefited from that. So it kind of opened up my eyes, eyes to different possibilities of, you know, there's other things. You know, yeah. there's, I mean, I didn't realize, actually, that there's thousands of religions at that point in my life, you know? Yeah. And then I think I remember I read a magazine. I think it was called Spirit or something like that. It didn't last very long. It came out in the very early 90s. And it had kind of like counterculture stuff, things about rave music, you know, interviews with people into shamanism. And then there was an interview with a Druid. And I thought, oh, my God, there's actually Druids today. Wow. Uh, I think the guy was called Rollo Morfling, actually. He's still alive. He's very old. He's actually in the Glastonbury Order of Druids, and I think he's the head of the order. Cool. Um, I don't really know him. I've met him a couple of times, but I, you know, he's not someone I actually know. So I thought, well, God, I'm, I'll try and find out a bit about this. So that started my journey of trying to, you know, learn. It took me a while before I actually met any real Druids, mm. and. Uh, I went to Avebury Stone Circle, where I actually met Rollo Morfling there and a few other people. Um, and then, you know, I did, I mostly actually just did a lot of reading on my own and study mm. that way, because I wasn't really aware about joining an order or about um, joining a grove or anything like that. I mean, bearing in mind, there was no internet really back okay. then, mm -hmm. you know, and then, one day I was, I used to work in a part of London called Swiss Cottage and I was on my way to work. I looked in the window and I saw in this bookshop window, the, the Book of Druidry by a guy called Ross Nichols. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I think I came back at lunchtime and bought it. Uh, it was pretty expensive actually, but um, that kind of really, I. Yeah, it kind of blew my head off. There was stuff in there I didn't really understand at the time. Mm. And coming back to it later, it made sense. But, you know, there were sort of mythology and concepts and stuff that I'd never come across before. So it was mm. quite a steep learning curve. Mm. Uh, and then when I moved to Ireland, I kind of got preoccupied with, you know, nuts and bolts of family and work, you know, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm divorced now, but my ex-wife is was from the east coast, a bit south of Dublin, mm. and we kind of settled there. We had a little girl; she was just a baby, 
So I kind of, for a while, like, you know, you're just trying to get your life together and, and set up a new whatever, you know, home, job, etc. So, you know, it's kind of normal enough in that you might put some of the stuff aside because you've got so much sort of practical stuff to do. Yeah. Kind of like this, um, I suppose, hierarchy of needs idea that mm. you get the basics together first and then then you think about higher things sort of yeah for sure when when that's all in order mm -hmm. so anyway eventually um yeah i ended up uh we got divorced um, and then during that kind of time afterwards i sort of i suppose rediscovered sort of my interest in spirituality yeah mm. perhaps main and partly because you know it was a very difficult time in my life yeah so i just got into the druid stuff also into yoga mm. which i'd learned a lot when i was a lot younger when i was a kid actually I, but i'd kind of forgotten about yoga mm -hmm. for a very long time i went back to it a bit like with the garden you know i forgot about <laughs> that and going back to it again um and so I actually start. I you know I joined a Druid Grove, and uh, then I joined uh, Obod. Mm, yeah. And I also discovered the Druid clan of Dana, which is part of the Fellowship of Isis, which is cool. in Carlo, County Carlo, in um, uh, the sort of east, not quite the east coast, but sort of the eastern side of the country. Mm. Cool. So just for our, our listeners, Obad is the um, order of bards, obates, and druids, right? That's yeah, that's right. Yeah, biggest like initiatory organizations for yeah. The, yeah. In that book I mentioned, I mentioned Ross Nichols. He was the guy that started that, mm -hmm. oh. and then hit the the chief followed on from him was Philip Carl Gum. Yeah, and now the new um, chief is Ema Burke. Mm -hmm. So that's the she's the third of of three uh like heads of that organization and there was a kind of a pause because he died ross nichols and the whole thing just stopped for i don't know more than 10 years wow and then uh, philip gargon took it on but i mean at the time when ross nichols died i think he was really still very young hmm. you know and not really quite ready for it yeah but he he restarted it and now he's passed on the mantle to Ema. Cool. So we've had a couple of druids on the show before. And one thing that they say is that if you ask a druid what druidry is, if you ask three druids what druidry is, you'll get five answers, right? <laughs> so probably that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so what 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 is druidry to you? What does it mean? Well, yeah, there isn't a definitive answer as such. So really, I suppose you can only really talk about what you think it is. Um, I mean, there are some common aspects to it. I'd say, you know, like a, a, a love of nature, environmentalism, you know, a connection with some kind of deity or spirit. Um, actually, having said that, there is a secular order of druids. And, you know, you can sort of have agnostic druids too. Uh, I don't know if you could be an atheist druid exactly, but uh, I know there might be some atheist druids somewhere. But 
you know, this it's very fluid. The modern concept about deity is very fluid. So, you know, you even got people who are maybe Buddhist druids as well. They kind of fuse too, or and Christian too, um, which is kind of odd when you think about Christianity supplanting druidism and wiping it out. That you could be Christian and then become a druid. Uh, but, you know, some people managed to make it work. Um, yeah. But I mean, I suppose you've got the key thing is like having connection with spirit or deity, however you want to define it. It doesn't have to be polytheistic. It could be quite nebulous, you know, what, what your concept of that is. And then I think be more specifically you you're getting into concepts like creativity um you know history art uh poetry and then kind of uh sort of the what you might broadly call sciences uh, like you know herbalism medicine that kind of thing and sort of a more spiritual kind of healing as well overlaps with shamanism to a very large extent and then you've got sort of concepts like um, justice and law all that kind of stuff um, generally you you see it broken into three different groups which would be the bards of it and druids mm -hmm. you know but i mean back in the day the you know in the original form before uh christianity became really powerful uh, these people would have been sort of uh, very powerful positions, sort of with uh, advisors to kings and royalty, or whatever, and they'd act as like a judge or justice does now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as like a doctor does now, and also sort of um, like almost politicians in a way. Mm -hmm. Although you didn't have like the same democratic structures, but the kind of running of society would be, they'd be involved in that. And also with, with very much with, with the history of families, of clans, the tour, if you like. And, um, you know, they'd remember genealogies, they'd remember like hundreds of poems, hundreds of histories and, and mythological stories. Like the culture bearers. Like yeah. So, I mean, that, that does tip over into today, but in a different way. Because, like, when you say you, you, you get pulled over for having, like, I don't know, your car's, like, falling to bits, you get up in court for having, a, like, a broken car, you're not going to sit in front of a druid. You're going to, there's going to be a judge there. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it's possible that judge could also be a druid in their spare time, but they're, in their official capacity, they're not going to be, you're not going to be uh, in front of a druid. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I guess there are a lot less people at the time, too. So, yeah, yeah. less specialization. But so, druidry is basically it's a spiritual path, right? And it seems very holistic to me. Like, there's a lot of balance going on. Like, I'd say so. I mean, I think it's very much about that. And, you know, um, again, it's got parallels with Taoism. Like, I would see the yin-yang symbol as very powerful, but you've got two halves that make a third the whole. And um, 
you've got very much in Celtic culture the idea of day and night of two halves of the year the you know you've unlike today's day where you start in the morning um I think not just in Ireland but in you know a place like Gaul as well the day started when the sun went down mm. so not, your day begins when when it gets dark and you know finishes at that point again so you've got the darkness followed by the by the light and then this, with the year as well that's traditionally regarded as starting in october at what we call Samhain or halloween mm -hmm. that's the first half of the year and then you get the light half of the year after it hmm. you know so and the, these are very powerful archetypes the, the light and the dark you know okay they're very kind of you can make generalizations about the stuff which are very um reductive yeah but you know you've got this sort of duality of you know many different things of male and female good and evil light and dark etc etc and lots of symbolism attached to it yeah makes sense got two hands mm -hmm. two eyes <laughs> yeah. but um the metaphors you find in Druidry are, are very much naturalistic. They come out of nature. Yeah. And as well, the tree is a very powerful symbol mm -hmm. in, in Druidism or Druidry. Mm -hmm. So it also seems like, uh, yeah, like Druidry with the concept of justice um, is, is an important part of it still. So that's also seems to be how like it, it resonates with your ecological activism too. Oh yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I mean, it, if you look at how things have gone over time, um, I would have been like about 20 when they had this first massive conference about the environment. Was it in Rio, I think that that happened? And um, yeah, we're going, oh my gosh, we've got to do something. This is gonna, and like where we are, what is it? It's um, it's 30 years later and like what's changed, you know? I mean, people, general awareness has improved. A lot of people are, you know, very concerned and upset about this, but the people that control the world, you know, what have they actually done to actually get rid of this problem and change things and they've done very very little they've done a lot of talking is, is what they've done yeah mm -hmm. uh, maybe use used some of the uh, talking to make them more money <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and avoided actually having to deal with the problems uh, in a concrete kind of real way mm. um, and that's i think it's actually very deliberate what it's like you know they know at the end of the day that we're going to go off a cliff that the gravy train will end, mm -hmm. but they're trying to make it last for as long as they possibly can and milk as much money out of the system yeah. while they still can. Yeah. And even though they know it's actually going to bring uh, like a cat catastrophe closer and sooner. Yeah. So but yeah, they, well, they just don't care. Yeah, yeah. They're like, Oh, it's a four year term or whatever. So, or yeah. yeah my grandchildren will have to deal with this but not me yep. yeah yeah i mean that's the opposite of justice 
yeah. really yeah. from a Druidic point of view. I mean, in the, you know, it's a long time ago, you're talking 1500 plus years ago um, that the Druids are really powerful. But even in the medieval times in sort of like uh, Ireland and, um, and parts of Britain, if you were a really useless ruler, um, you know, you, you could you'd be got rid of. If, you know, there's a symbolism about the land dying because the ruler is unjust. So you get famines and plagues and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So if if your your kingship or sovereignty was bad, then the land suffered too, and that's a still a quite a powerful um, sort of notion. And like you know, look at how we've stewarded the world. I mean, we've done a terrible job, and and the world is getting knackered for want of a better word, you know, because. Um, the people that are running this planet are idiots, or if they're not idiots, they're deliberately appearing to be incompetent just so that they can make money. Uh, and these people are just, you know, what are, what are their concerns? Do they actually care about the future of humanity, the future of the world? And, you know, I think all over this planet, people are looking at government and thinking, hey, you're not accountable. You know, yeah, for sure. Yeah, you talk a little bit in your book, The Druid Garden, about the rise of the Industrial Revolution and the rise of the Druid movement. And I wanted to see if you could maybe extrapolate on that for our listeners a little bit about maybe why people were drawn to Druidry at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, well, you'd have to bear in mind that most of the people that got involved in it back in the 1700s were at least what you'd call middle class or more. Because, like back in the day, you know, if you were really poor, you would really just be too busy trying to stay alive to actually, you know, go off and become a druid. Yeah. <laughs> you were just like, my God, if this crop fails, I'm dead and my family are dead. So you kind of spend your time doing that mm -hmm. um, or working to, to make the money to make sure you can survive. So it was kind of a bit of a middle class upper class kind of hobby yeah people but you know i think what may have led to it to a large extent is the fact that you know you had this rural society that had gone on for well forever since i suppose the end of the ice age through to like the 1700s mm -hmm. and it hasn't really changed that much you know okay you know the very first plow was pretty rubbish. And then, you know, by 1700, you had really like nicely made steel plows, mm -hmm. but it was still drawn by horses and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly you've got steam power and you've got coal mining and you've got all this stuff. I mean, the coal mining was kind of as a result of steam, you know, they needed coal. Mm -hmm. So you start to see these massive holes in the landscape where They've chopped down like acres of forest and where there used to be a nice hill, there's this massive hole mm. of open cast coal mining and you've got tar pits, which they got bitumen and oil from before oil drilling and they go, oh, this is great and scoop it all out and use it. And then you've just got this awful mess where, yeah. you know, so you're, you're starting to see the desecration of the landscape on a massive scale, even back then. Mm. 
And I think maybe that triggered something, some kind of ancient voice in people's heads about the custodianship of the planet. And mm. uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that that started at the same point as all this kind of destruction. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that is, it is really interesting to me. It's also, I mean, it seems like the, the, that atheistic materialistic worldview that became ascendant at that time of the industrial revolution, which allowed people to desecrate, like make the land not sacred anymore, um, then and start destroying it. Uh, th- there's, the, you know, that reaction immediately where people are like, "No, this is wrong," you know, and going back to to the roots, mm. where, where uh, of a worldview where the world and the, the earth was sacred. Yeah. You know? But I mean, the unfortunate thing is there's a lot, probably loads of people that agree with that, but maybe they couldn't get involved because you didn't have, feel they have any choice. You know, yeah. you start to see migrations with people moving out because they had to, to industrial centers just to get a job, just to stay alive, really, because, you know, it wasn't possible for them to survive any other way. Yeah. Uh, yeah and it's interesting you know the people who are benefiting from the you know fossil fuel extraction which are not just the a uh, uh, top one percent but like the whole middle class too you know um they're the ones who have the time then to to focus back on the spiritual pursuits but <laughs> yeah well we're, we're kind of all lucky now in a way because i mean in the western world food is pretty cheap yeah. You know? yeah. So um, you don't have to go and dig over your garden in order to, to feed yourself. In fact, lots of people don't even have any garden. Yeah. But I think there is in the back of people's mind this realization that, hey, if if the world stops turning tomorrow and society failed, you know, you know, you've got a cupboard full of food and that's it. And you don't have anything. Mm-hmm. How, how are you going to manage you know yeah yeah i think we saw that this you know with the coronavirus right. yeah i'm aware of that it's yeah. also interesting that like the reason that food is so cheap is because of fossil fuels too like the way like in the industrialization of the of the the <coughs> arm mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean you know you think about horsepower that yeah. concept okay well you think a machine that's got you know, 700 horsepower, that's like theoretically equivalent to 700 horses doing the work, you know, that's a hell of a lot of horses. And like (laughs) one human power is less than a horsepower. So, yeah, it's made things that were formerly impossible, like, or very, very difficult, so much so easy, you know. Yeah. I I think we've got to go back. There's got to be a point where you go, right, there's a trade-off here, so you know we could maybe keep a lot of it but but yeah. make it green make it actually truly green rather mm. than like just a fake green you know you can't t- get a big tractor and put a you know a picture of a flower on the side of it and and a one solar <laughs> panel on the roof and say it's a green tractor it's not it's just that's just greenwash you know right right yeah but then also like growing a garden and producing some of your own food is a way to um, wean yourself off of that industrial system. Oh, yeah. 
Well, look, uh, in the book, I described how even in a tiny apartment, you could do that. Yeah. You know, people said, oh, but I've only an apartment. And go, but do you have a balcony? He said, oh, yeah, I've got a balcony. Well, you know, you can hang loads of stuff off the railings. You can put hanging baskets off the wall. Even inside, you can put like kind of window boxes just inside the window and mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Uh, and you, it's incredible how little space you can grow stuff in. <clears throat> yeah, it's true. And we're seeing like a rise in um, community gardens and urban agriculture areas. We just had an urban agriculturist on. And mm. so, yeah, encouraging people to like find a little plot nearby is another way to do it too. But I think that this, the whole point here is that growing a garden is empowering. You know, you take the, the nourishment and like the process into your own hands, you know? And I think that's something that's really inspiring about the Druid Garden, your book. It's about like not relying on politicians or somebody higher up to make these big um, changes, but you making the changes in yourself and in your own life by planting yeah. a garden, you know? I think it changes you internally as well. Yeah. yeah. Once you kind of start looking at, like, I don't know, a, a leak, for instance, instead of this green tube, you mm -hmm. kind of see it as a living plant. And you kind you know, I really like it. You, you get a little seed and you put it in and mm -hmm. you water it and you leave it somewhere warm and you wait. And then suddenly this little couple of leaves pops up. Well, actually with a leak, it'll be one. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and then you know you watch it grow and you look after it and then you know you do take its life at the end but yeah. um you know hopefully you do it in a in a grateful sacred way rather than sort of you know having no kind of concept of its life um uh, and the process you've gone through, you know, people just go into supermarkets and grab stuff as if almost as if it's boxes. Yeah. When it's actually you're talking about living things, you know, live animals that were alive and plants that were alive. Some, I mean, carrots are still alive usually when you get yeah. them. Up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, there's little tricks I've used, like one, you, you know, you get. Uh, what we call scallions you probably call them spring onions mm -hmm. yeah, um, you, you can chop off like the leave like an inch or so at the bottom if there's a bit of root you've got an inch or so of, of the of the actual vegetable and replant that so you're using like three quarters of it and put the other one in a pot and then it grows back again you have more you know? and you, you didn't you so you got like double the amount of stuff yeah three and then when that's got big, you can do the same thing again, leave it in the pot, cut it off with a pair of scissors. And you've got infinite supply of, of scallions then, really. Yeah. You know? And really? you don't even have to kill the plant. You just keep mm -hmm. kind of harvesting it. Yeah. So speaking of harvesting and doing it in a good way, um, how do you harvest plants? What kind of offerings do you make to plants or to spirits of your land? Personally? Well, there's there's different ways you can do it there's like seasonal festivals that kind of mark the agricultural year which you kind of make a um a big deal about and then there's sort of like the day-to-day -day thing of like when you harvest a, a plant or whether you just like you know if i've got to go and take some mint i would go look i'm sorry i gotta cut you here but can i 
take a bit of mint from you. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, you, it's some people go, oh, my God, you're such a lunatic. You know, <laughs> like you probably, you know, that, uh, heard of Prince Charles, the, you know, in England. Mm-hmm. He famously talks to plants and stuff, and he's been laughed at a lot for that. But, you know, okay, I'm not a big fan of his, but, you know, I I totally get that. Yeah. Uh, And some people think you're nuts, but, you know, they they may not actually understand the words, but I think they will sort of sense the intention. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And and you can, you know, sort of uh, if you do through journeying or meditation, communicate with them that way. You can't talk to them like say, hey, how are you today? And they'll actually understand you. But, you know, in a meditative state, you can have a rudimentary kind of conversation with them yeah so i mean you respectfully say to you know the tree or the plant i I need to harvest some food from you i hope that's all right and then you take it in a respectful way and you might even you know some people do give offerings too and i think you have to be careful about that because some people have used things like milk which plants don't like Mm -hmm. uh, often causes like fungal growth in the soil so you can be very careful with that. You need to dilute it, really, really dilute it. Mm. Uh, and alcohol, alcohol's poisonous to plants. So, mm. you know, giving a, you know, a nip of whiskey to, you know, to your tree is like, you know, your cherry tree is gonna die if you keep doing that, you know? Yeah. So um, you've got to be careful. You've got to be appropriate in what you do, but even just, you know, some symbolic offering is normally sufficient. Yeah. You know, well, I, yeah, I noticed in, in your book, you talked about the offering milk or pork um, and you said you don't really offer plants. But here in the America, uh, tobacco is like the prime offering for plants, the spirits of the land. too. Well, look, you have to go with where you live and what's appropriate. Yeah. I mean, to my mind, like, you know, um, you know, say say he was a human. Right. And I wanted to get something from you like you wanted you to give me i don't know cakes or whatever if i brought you a, you know a human leg as an offering <laughs> or, or, or a leg of a some other creature would you be like oh jesus well, if you're bringing really a leg of a, of a pig I'd, I'd eat i'd love that yeah that might be okay but like in a certain way i just think a sunflower that's going to give you its seeds doesn't really benefit from getting a piece of a stinging nettle given to it does it it's got no use for it, or it wouldn't want uh, another plant. Unless it's you know, so, in a biodynamic preparation, right? <laughs> I'm trying to think of what, you know, uh, from the plant's point of view, you, if you're going to honor it properly, you've got to give it what's appropriate. Yes. So what, yeah, a biodynamic preparation may benefit it, or some fertilizer is often like what it would most love would be you yeah. to give it some liquid feed or yeah. a little bit of you know ch- chicken poo or something that's rotted down and it might sound horrible to me I, don't, I if someone gave me chicken poo i wouldn't be very like <laughs> feeling very blessed but you know a rose bush would be delighted to get some sure. well rotted chicken poop you know okay. yeah that's true <laughs> yeah that's a really good point so I think you've got to think it through, really, yeah. about your offering. What what seems appropriate, not to you, but to who you're giving it to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting tidbits in in this book, the Druid Garden. Another um, 
bit that I that I was interested in is the Garden of the Four Elements. I thought I think that's a really cool idea. I hadn't really heard of it before, but I also like instinctively like I'm we're planning our gardens out here, and like I I kind of like one was thinking of doing like a circle yeah, one sure. with like four you know sections. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, maybe you yeah, could talk. Well, um, that that came to me through the illustrator Elena Danan because hmm. she's French so hmm. she's kind of grown up with this thing and outside of France it's really not very well known and pretty much all the literature on it was in French so I mean um, I could read it badly but she translated it into better English for me so I could then use it myself you know but I mean, there's almost nothing on that in English that I could find. So that was really great to be able to get that information. And, um, you know, you've got kind of some sort of similar traditions across Europe and probably sort of, you know, other countries too. But, the you know, France is where that really survived intact, you know, as, a, as an idea. But I mean, you, you could adapt that to like... Um, to any country really and also you could even yeah like you say have a circular one or you could do even like a threefold division like um Hmm. yeah in ireland there's very much the concept of the three realms and you've got nine elements so three is really important so Hmm. you you could make a a three-part one or a four-part one uh, and you know it would still work the same way i think you know yeah yeah i guess we also haven't really talked about like are you your professional horticulturist too yeah yeah i trained did the uh, dublin school of horticulture yeah that's really cool it's, it's really interesting that you can bring together those two parts like the druidry with like the hortic like horticulture knowledge i mean i've been gardening for a really long time but i haven't ever gardened for other people you know what i mean like i've never been like a horticulturist what what is that like for you yeah that can be that can be sometimes wonderful and sometimes really depressing (laughs) yeah you know i mean i i worked for garden centers and i was really shocked at how some of them are really unenvironmentally friendly yeah yeah you know a perfect example would be like i mean in europe the biggest center for production of plants is is the netherlands or holland you know, and it's very industrialized there. So they produce these kind of batches of stuff. Uh, and then this massive truck will will leave and arrive in Ireland a few days later. And these big metal cages come off full of all the plants and the plants are all wrapped in a massive load of plastic, which you have to pull off. And then each individual plant is inside mm. a plastic thingy and then the pots are usually plastic and then there's a plastic label and sometimes there's a plastic or cardboard display case. So before you even get it into the shop, you've got this gigantic kind of ecological uh, footprint. Yeah. And then a percentage of the plants die anyway, because you've got so many plants, they don't normally have, you know, an abundance of staff. So, you know, if there's a sudden change in the weather and it's really bad or it's suddenly super hot, you might end up losing some of the stock. Uh, and then, 
And I mean, there's, it's great that garden centers exist and then it gets people interested in plants, but then, you know, uh, there is a downside to that too. So that, you know, um, but I think there is maybe a move towards kind to be more accountable, more archeological, and that does need to happen. Um, but actually working like as a gardener for people, that's been sometimes a really wonderful experience. But then I can remember sometimes I've been asked to do stuff which I really didn't want to do. And I have done it on occasion. And other times I've just said no. And I'm like, sorry, I'm not doing that. I remember a guy came into a garden center once and he says, right, there's these, um, there's this load of trees here and they belong to my neighbor and I want to kill them. <laughs> and I said, what? You, so you want to kill your neighbor's trees? Yeah, so I'm sick of looking at them. I want to get rid of them. I said, well, one, they're your neighbor's trees. You shouldn't be doing that when it belongs to somebody else. And I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm not going to tell you how to kill a whole bunch of trees. Yeah. So look, <laughs> off he went. He yeah. wasn't you take, all this, take all this compost, put the compost around the trees. That'll help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's great when you get a project which is like restoration or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, a, a, a really knackered garden that's in terrible mess and and then turning it into something that's wonderful with more, you know, lots more plants, more biodiversity. And um, that can be really enjoyable. And like one thing I love about it, it's you see the results so quickly. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, if you work in a paperclip office and you just do, I don't know, you ship paperclips to the other side of the world, you don't really get much kind of immediate job satisfaction, do you really? You don't see yeah. what's happening in your industry or what, you know, the end result of it. You're not going to sit there and see the guy at the other end open his packet of paperclips and use them and go hey i'm so glad that i work in this industry you know when you actually work with real plants and you you start a garden and then a week later you can see massive improvement and then you come back three weeks later and everything's growing like crazy and you know it's so rewarding in terms of feedback that you 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 know it's just there straight away and when things go well it's just really it's really uplifting, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I've always found it very rewarding to work in the garden anyway, get your hands dirty, yeah. work with plants. So yeah. What are some of your favorite plants that you always will grow in whatever garden you keep? Like what are your, who are your, your, well, your... um, actually one of my favorites is actually a very poisonous plant, uh, huh? the foxglove. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. If you, there, I shouldn't say too much about this actually, really, because I don't want to be responsible for a load of murders. But <laughs> <laughs> it's a very poisonous plant in certain parts. Anyway, uh, I love them. They're beautiful. I mean, they're only uh, like a biennial, but you can actually buy a cultivated version, which is uh, perennial. Mm. It tends not to have like the same you know uh, fragrance at all or anything like that but um yeah and uh, but the wild one i particularly like them they're beautiful and another one i like is the agapanthus african uh, um, 
African lily, I think it's called. It's, hmm. Yeah, they're blue usually. You can get a white one too, but the blue ones are beautiful evergreen and they flower for ages and ages. So, and they'll grow pretty much anywhere. They even grow here in Ireland quite well, you know, as long as they're not in a bog. If it's not really, really damp uh, ground, they'll do quite well here, you know. Cool. Do you have a veggie garden too? Still? Yeah, yeah, I've got loads of vegetables. Mm. Um, I moved from Wexford where I had a big garden. I've got a small one here, but it's all in the, the north. So I've got fish boxes. Because oh. uh, yeah, this is a fishing fishing town. Uh-huh. Yeah, so uh, you know, there's always I gone and scavenged broken fish boxes off of fishermen and whatever, you know. So I've got a whole series of fish boxes filled with the dirt compost. Like raised beds. Yeah, they're like miniature raised beds, and they're all south facing in front of the house because the, the the garden's actually in the worst possible place. I mean, there is some, you know, a few things in there, ferns and things like holly, they don't mind, the, you know, shade, but yeah. your vegetables don't like the shade. So, yeah, they have to go in front of the house in the boxes. There's another uh, bit you talk about in this in, in this book that I hadn't really um, come across too much before as a part of a garden is the rockery. I don't really know that much about rockeries. <laughs> what well, it's not that hard when you think about it. I mean, the hardest bit is actually making the thing because there's a lot of labor involved, a lot of physical effort. But once you've got it set up, you know, you've got to have pockets of soil. And yeah. then, you know, things like alpine plants tend to do really well in, in those. Yeah. Because you know, they're going to drain quite well. So stuff that's Mediterranean or alpine will do well in a rockery. Cool. And they just kind of look kind of cool, you know. So a rockery is basically like, your landscape is covered with rocks? Except well, well you tend to be like a, a sort of like a miniature hill or a uh -huh. sort of a, well, not necessarily, or it might be a bank, you know, uh -huh. with lots of rocks in it. And, you know, um, yeah, I mean, you can do it all kinds of ways, really. It's up to yourself, but it's like, you've got a lot of stone there. Basically, yeah. really. mm -hmm. Well, we've got a lot of stone here in our yeah. soil, so. <laughs> We've been thinking about things to do with them. They're mm -hmm. not really good for making stone walls with because uh, yeah. they're all, you know, chunky and different. Uh, yeah. You know, they don't stack well, but I yeah. think it'd be cool to make a little rock garden with yeah. them. Yeah, you could make them in sort of like a pile of rock and then all the gaps in, you know, you can then fill with, with a bit of soil and put in your, you know, different plants in. And it looks interesting, you know. Yeah, uh, I remember I made one in my f the first house in Wexford. My 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 mother came and helped me do that actually because nice. she'd done that before, uh, and so she came and helped me do that. It was great, you know. Mm -hmm. It's good fun. Cool. And it got rid of a load of rocks that were like in <laughs> inconvenient places. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's it's cool also to make lots of different microclimates and uh, you know diverse air, like areas where you can put in plants that wouldn't survive necessarily in like the turf or in the garden yeah the, like those alpine plants like we're growing some uh rose root or um rhodiola it's in little the seedlings of it the seeds of it and that would be a good place for those too huh yeah and like you know you're saying that about climates well you've got like you know permaculture you've got these different yeah. zones so things can work and like 
you can also create little zones, like say you've got a windy area, you can kind of make a wall or a fenced off bit. So where you know certain things uh, that need shelter and can't take the wind and then stuff that's hardy, you can put it at a windy spot. And, you know, you find out a bit about the plants, you know, um, you wouldn't put ferns in an ultra sunny spot. Yeah. You put them in a nice shady spot where they're going to like that. Uh, you know, and you're not going to put like uh, a peach tree in the shade right next <laughs> to the house. You're going to put it right where it's going to get loads of sun south facing. So, you know, like you say, different zones to your garden, different areas. And if, if you know your place and you, you know which way the sun goes, you know what the conditions are like, which is the windy part of your garden and which isn't and all that kind of thing. Then you can like, you can cite things where they, you know they're going to do well rather than just randomly, sh you know, bunging stuff in the ground, yeah, you know, and hoping for a bit of luck, you know. Yeah, that's. I think that's good advice. I mean, a big part about gardening is knowing the plants and what they like, and then knowing your land and the and climate aspects. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Picturing like people who don't have a lot of water and climates that don't have a lot of water and picturing like these cool elaborate rock gardens instead of trying to grow grass or you know something like that in a front yard yeah. you know like yeah lawns are actually very intensive work yeah. they need water they need to be weeded they need to be cut and like you know for a monoculture that's basically useless for anything and no benefit to any wildlife really yeah. it's an awful lot of effort so I'm kind of not mad keen on lawn areas, really. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot better uses you can put to things which are actually going to benefit insects right. and bees, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, totally. I guess if you had like sheep or geese, they, they yeah. can manage the, the lawn. <laughs> be yeah, but the, tr they eat the other stuff too, that's the trouble, you know. Yeah. 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 So you, you've got this book, The Druid Garden, out. You've also got, like, Druid's Primer and How to Save the World and some other books. You have books on poetry, Carrie Folktales. you got a lot yeah, of stuff. Um, this one, the new one, is my seventh one, actually. Seven. So, wow. Okay. Um, and I have another one coming out around the end of September or middle of September, which is about uh, Halloween, the sound. Oh, oh nice. That's yeah. awesome. You know, that's the interesting kind of from a, um, a kind of plant point of view, too, because it's like uh, that's the end of the year. That's the, like the very end of your harvest where you, yeah. you store away all your food. You store apples are such a big thing for Halloween because yeah. that's yeah. when you traditionally would um, put all your apples in storage. And then you have the apple games and you've got your blackberries, you, you know, they say, you know, you shouldn't eat them after Halloween. Because like yeah. the devil pissed on them and that stuff like that. Interesting. So there's lots of food culture around that time of year. Yeah. And then you know people slaughtered their animals as well and salted and preserved stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> so th that book is all about that and not not so much about the food. There is some stuff about the food, mm -hmm. but it's also about the whole um, cultural. Uh, event of it really and where it came from and its origins and uh, you know but you've got that's one of eight points in the year in the celtic druidic world which and they all do relate to to nature and to plants 
um, in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's my favorite time of the year. <laughs> I love that the, the fall and Samhain and yeah. Um, well, for me, actually, it always makes me feel a bit sad because uh-huh. I know like we're coming into winter and it's probably <laughs> going to be raining for several months. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So at, at the same time as I enjoy it, I enjoy it. You have you to know, savor it. I'm like, oh, it's going to be like three months till I see the sun, really. So, yeah, that can be, um, I find that difficult. Once I've accepted the winter's coming, you know, that's fine. You just get over it. But, you know, um, yeah, we have a deep winter here. And so there's something really nice about just being like covered in snow and like asleep almost. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good time for reading and, and, and writing probably. But there is a grieving time mm-hmm. when you go out to the garden and everything got a hard frost and you just cry. <laughs> yeah, it can be a bit sad, especially if you're not expecting it and things yeah. get, you know, there's some things you, you know, I've got in containers you can bring inside, uh-huh, and and, which is a great thing with container grown stuff that you can yeah. overwinter it. And, but yeah, I know what you mean. But they, there is a thing, you know, of like, you know, like you say, the introspection, the hibernation kind of aspect, yeah. which is really good. You need a break from all this heavy work and, Mm-hmm. it's good i think i think is it the scandinavians have a special word for this is it in denmark or sweden i can't remember what it is but they have this real special thing of like cocooning mm. over the winter because they obviously have very harsh winters yeah mm-hmm. down in the south of ireland uh, where i live right down the bottom we don't get harsh, yeah <laughs> really yeah. harsh winter but up in northern ireland you can get a lot of snow yeah. uh, and very severe winds we get storms from the West Coast mm. that last the whole winter sometimes. You know, I think last year we just got one after another after another, just constant. Mm. So obviously your garden's completely battered by by this time of year. You've had like 15 storms. You yeah. know, everything's just, you know, sort of fast asleep until like the weather warms up. But yeah. So you're in County Kerry? Yeah, that's the bottom southwest corner. You could probably grow probably the most things anywhere in the in Ireland there, huh? Yeah, we've got a couple of unique things here. There's a, a tree called the strawberry tree, which is oh, yeah. unique to Kerry. It probably at some point may have been spread across the world. In fact, you can get them anywhere in the world now, cultivated versions. Yeah. Strangely, the biggest place for growing them is Italy. They, they grow them in Italy and export them from there all over the world. But they actually grow native only just in Kerry. Wow. So why because is it the climate? It's like a microclimate. Yeah. You know? I've seen them in like San Francisco and oh, really? I, I gorged myself on them. Yeah. yeah. Why do they call it the strawberry? They're, they're quite tasty, actually. Does it taste like strawberries? No, not really. It's oh. kind of more the appearance. It's like a imagine you had a. Uh, a strawberry and you turned it into a table tennis ball like its shape okay, okay. yeah so it looks like a, you know a circular strawberry wow. and then but the taste is sort of i don't know how to describe it it's it is sweet and it's got a very similar kind of <laughs> similar texture maybe but mm-hmm. the taste isn't the same mm-hmm. but it is nice and it's a really odd thing because they take a long time to um 
to mature. They start off kind of orangey yellow and then they go red. Obviously they're right when they're red and they're the same color, but because they take so long, you get both the flowers and the fruit at the same time. Wow. So you'll have next this year's kind of flowers, which is a white kind of bell shape. Uh-huh. And then you've got like the fruit from last year, which is still ripening at the same time. Really? And of course it takes different times. So you've got some orange fruit, you've got some red fruit and maybe a few yellow ones. And then you've got the flowers. Wow. And it's, it's evergreen as well. So it's a really weird tree and it's got quite unique Ever- bark as well. I need to look this up. I'm like, you're blowing my mind right now. Yeah. <laughs> so they can get quite big eventually, you know, cool. but they don't like harsh winds. I mean, I had a really quite a nice one. It was getting bigger. It was in a pot. It was about maybe two, two, two and a half feet tall. And then we had this terrible winter where it got down to minus 15. Uh. Uh, and awful winds and it got shredded you know um see you've you've kind of got mountains around that kind of cut off parts of Kerry around Killarney and that it's sort of a little microclimate where it's kind of sort of sheltered and so you know within a kind of woodland area where it's sheltered from like extreme winds and and it never really gets that freezing here mm. at least not for more than a day or two uh you know they'll do fine but like you know um if it gets really freezing or extreme winds they, they tend to get absolutely hammered you know yeah we probably can't grow them up here in new york <laughs> probably not you pro if you had a uh, like a sunroom or yeah. a greenhouse uh-huh. you yeah. could probably have one in that you know or and we'll just have to come fun. and visit when it's <laughs> strawberry tree season yeah. But I mean, like you say, you could probably order one from a garden center. Yeah. And then just as an ornamental plant, they're really quite amazing to have, you know? Yeah. Plus you get the bonus of, of the, you can, you can use them with like with other fruit, you know, to make jams or whatever, you know? Yeah. There are a lot of good ornamental plants, you know, when I'm urban foraging, <laughs> they have yeah. so many like a uh, Cornelian cherry. I see a lot and um, June berries. I don't know if you have June berries over there in Ireland, but over here, not heard of it. No, the, it has another, a couple chase tree, no, not, uh, no, not uh, chase tree. Um, service a, berry, service berries. One um, another in Saskatoon, it's Amelanchier. I don't know if I'm pronouncing. Oh it. yeah. I know that species. Yeah. There's, there's a particularly nice, pretty looking Amelanchier's. But I didn't know you were edible as well. Like uh, yeah, the berries, yeah, really tasty, okay. kind of like a blueberry flavor. Well, the yeah. it looks like a blueberry, but it tastes like I don't know. It has has an a little seeds that are like almonds because it's mm-hmm. it has that almond seed yeah. center. Oh, right. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. There's a ton of plants that are edible that people have forgotten are edible. Yeah, you know? yeah. Like there's a all these ornamental myrtle play, uh, bushes. I used to work for this big golf course and hotel and it had 160 acres and I had to look after that. I was like the head gardener there. Anyway, around the hotel, we had these myrtle bushes. So I'd be just going along and I'd just pick a few berries and eat them. And this good looking at me like I was insane. Like, what the hell are you doing? Says, aren't those poisonous or something? I said, no, these were used to be a common thing that people used to eat. Like these mm-hmm. bright kind of deep red, sort of almost purpley mm. and like you you know they've been forgotten 
Yeah. Like quinces as well. People yeah. oh, yeah. used to eat them. No, now that's very unusual. And like there's all kind of different types of carrots. There's loads of root vegetables and you know, all kinds of stuff. I mean, uh, uh even the weeds, you know. Right. Yeah. You go and pick pick a hairy bit of cress or yeah. dandelions and stuff. And you get strange looks from people. They think you're, you know, that you're a lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> They're so used to buying a limited set of vegetables from a shop that yeah. it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't occur to them to eat the weeds, like you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Harry Bittercress is one of my favorites. Yeah, it's kind of like Rocket, isn't it? It's nice. Yeah. It's it's good. I like you can cut cut the bottom. It has like a little root, and you can cut it. It's like a whole bunch of vegetable. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I can. Yeah, yeah, it's actually very tasty for salads. So I mean, that I mean. You have to let them get a bit big here, but I mean, because some of them are, really, you know, they really small. Yeah, they're really small. But like, if if you're lucky, you know, they do get big. But then they spread so much that yeah, uh, you know, um, there's so many of them. Sometimes it doesn't matter if they're small. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just take the the flowers and eat the flowers. Yeah. Flower heads, too, when they're small. But yeah, yeah. I, well, I that's brilliant. I always love doing that. But I'm not big on foraging though. Okay. Because like one of the problems with foraging is you've got an absence of so many wild plants in many places where they've been spraying Roundup and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like I can remember I found a yarrow plant on its own. And like you could probably drive for a mile in each direction. You won't see another yarrow plant. So that one yarrow is then going to have to like right. supply the seed for whatever yeah. that whole area because there's so few of them if you come along and you take out you know what little's there you end up with nothing right because you killed off the the goose that lays the golden egg what right. a thing so another thing i heard is said like you know you take a you know you don't take more than a third of anything mm -hmm. so you've got to leave you try and leave the plant there if you can Mm -hmm. you know or a, a section of it if it's a root thing don't take all the root you know that's such an important point yeah the ethics are so important yeah. to foraging but that's also why it's good to eat stuff like hairy bittercress which you know you're or, not gonna <laughs> or yeah, like, you know, that's not gonna go extinct is it yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i know it's like there's wild crafting and then there's weed crafting where it's like there's plants that are like here there's garlic mustard everywhere and it's in, yeah and it hurts and other plants yeah, yeah so yeah mint's a bit like that too and our oregano as well that really takes over which one so oregano Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Or oregano. My brain was like, what you, what do you say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I forget about these kind of slight differences. That's a really interesting thing, actually, that I've noticed that different plants have different names all over the world, yeah. you know? So the botanical names, they're, they're, they're yeah. universal. Yeah. Uh, or the Latin, but even there, how people say the latin names in different countries <laughs> it's really true it's different too so they're saying the same word but yeah. the pronunciation you have to think about it They're, oh yeah. yeah you mean this and it's like yeah but you know when you say like a lantern bush there's like 50 different lantern bushes around the world you know yeah. depending what country you live in right yeah so you know you, you can really get mixed up with stuff 
if, mm -hmm. if so I suppose it's brilliant that you've got the botanical name to go back to yeah you know because the one thing I noticed when you when you order stuff uh you know um in you know in a garden center or whatever or ring up a supplier if you give them the botanical name then they're like really oh brilliant that's great because yeah you know <laughs> you say you know, uh, I want an oak tree Mm -hmm. They go, right, okay, well, there's like 450 different <laughs> types of oak tree. Which yeah. one do you want? You know? Yeah. Right, totally. Yeah. But then sometimes they change the Latin names too. Like uh, Black Cohosh, I think, has been changed like three times. Yeah, it happens. Mm. In the last 50 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I do wonder why they do that sometimes. You know, it's a bit odd, but like. Um, I think it's sometimes it's for the, the academics, like. Uh, ego <laughs> they get to name something mm -hmm. yeah maybe so but i mean it still is a bit easier generally speaking yeah but yeah. i mean they are quite a cumbersome some of them and you know it's hard to remember them all you know yeah. yeah it gets important when you're doing talking about like herbal medicine too yeah um, oh god um, absolutely yeah especially if you're going into different regions and you know yeah well yeah i mean you i think if you were like a herbalist and you moved from one country to another or say even from one continent to another you could you could potentially end up poisoning people if you've got mixed up you know yeah well like hemlock hemlock yeah. means a po very poisonous plant yeah. and also here there's a beautiful tree uh -huh. that i i mean i think it is medicinal you don't really use it for much but yeah. it's definitely not poisonous mm -hmm. <laughs> and right. then yeah. hemlock <laughs> yeah but one is the most yeah. deadly plant that exists. yeah 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 you'd want to be very careful there actually it's quite interesting have you ever seen the film into the wild yeah uh, yeah 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 the guy in that accidentally poisoned himself didn't he right yeah, yeah. He died because he's sat in the bus and he realizes what he's done mm -hmm. but it's too late yeah. and there's no one to help him so he just died you know yeah. which is tragic but that's a really kind of good illustration of what happens if you mess it up? Yeah. And, um, I suppose fun fungi is another one. Oh yeah. yeah. That's yeah. You, you can easily end up like really tripping your head off or dead. Yeah. If you, if you mess up there too. Yep. Yeah, I read the account of somebody who ate uh poison um what kind were they? Uh and amanitas they were amanitas and he had thought that they were a field mushroom an agaricus that you can eat and he like it was the most terrifying he almost died um yeah. and but he didn't <laughs> it was like this close from dying uh and he just was throwing up he went to liver failure he had to go to the hospital like this stomach like sounds yeah sounds pretty dire doesn't it yeah <laughs> yeah well i i'm not an expert on mushrooms and 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 fungi generally i mean i know certain ones like my favorite i love horse mushrooms you mm, know yeah. yeah but i mean even though you've got to be a bit careful because like you know say for instance you went to a golf course and you saw a load of them right. quite often they use a lot of chemicals on golf courses yeah yeah a hell of a lot the, yeah. the mushrooms like uptake all those mm -hmm. yeah exactly so you think oh lovely horse mushrooms growing on this fairway but they may have sprayed it with all kinds of god knows what so you're you're getting like a, a polluted horse mm -hmm. mushroom mm -hmm. you know yeah that's why like my style of gardening is like kind of a forest garden uh way 
and it's been basically like making areas to forage for myself that mm. I have control over and I know exactly what I'm planting you know <laughs> yeah. the worst thing you're going to get is a bit of animal pee you know yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah we can live with that yeah <laughs> <laughs> actually it helps right helps the plant. fertilizer yeah yeah uh, I'd much rather have like you know have that than ingesting a load of glyphosate you know oh, exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah totally yeah, you just really don't know anymore what they're spreading yeah. mean, it's just everywhere too though that's the other thing it's like you know the air the water <laughs> yeah i know it's actually you know i don't like to think about that too much because it's kind of depressing but at the yeah. same time being aware of it means that you can you, you like you've taken control over your you know your food sovereignty really if you right. like yeah. because you know you're aware of all this and you've made spaces where where that's that you know it's not possible for anyone to come in and wreck it for you so but i mean it's not that long ago that really you think about there wasn't any of the stuff you know this all came about because of world war one and world war two yeah yeah you go go into that in the book that we were making these chemicals for chemical warfare and then we're like you know what let's just spray it on our food (laughs) yeah yeah and then the fertilizer came out of bombs you know yeah you know nitrogen based bombs they go look at wow those poppies are going really great guns aren't they i wonder why that is oh that's been there's a massive crater full of nitrate bombs you know Uh, and that's what that's how they figured it out that this is actually a really good substitute for uh, you know natural fertilizer although of course it isn't really because right. yeah. but it, it gives you that massive shot of nitrogen, but it, it doesn't have the balance of all the micronutrients and, and right. trace elements that you know nature provides. Yeah. But you know, that's how we went down this road, isn't it? Yeah. And like I seen a video recently of there's a black and white video of a kid being deloused with DDT, they're putting like DDT in his kid's hair. Wow. You know, to kill off like the Lice. Lice wow. I mean, now obviously they know, I mean, God knows what happened to that poor child. Oh but I mean, God. they used to put it on cabbages and stuff oh. you know, to, to kill off the, the, the insects. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it's frightening now, but I mean, we all know how toxic that was. But at the time, they, you know, it was being sold. You can see, ad, you can see on YouTube adverts for DDT still, I think. I think I've seen yeah. one or two. And well, it's quite now, laughable, you know. I mean, nowadays people are are spraying glyphosate everywhere. Like, yeah. you know, they don't yeah. care. <laughs> they, mm. But you know, and, and we know that it has, you know, there's some serious problems with that. But it's, mm. I mean, it's still going on. Yeah, I mean, one day that will get banned. Yeah, but, I mean, there was there was a big thing to ban it in Europe, and they what they did is they managed to get a, like a, I think it's a five or eight year extension. Okay. So I don't know who they paid off, but I'm pretty certain and Monsanto Bayer must have bribed a hell of a lot of people to get that um sure. that ban deferred. Right. You know. Yeah. Well, um I guess we're coming to the end of the of the show. Do you think you could give our audience a little bit uh information on how they can find your books and what else you're doing? 
Yeah, well, um, I've got a website, which is lukeeastwood.com, and you'll find all my books there. So uh, uh, I think he, he has a picture of the, the cover actually on the homepage. You can just click that and then you can buy it. It's just PayPal thing or whatever. Yeah. And um, or you can, buy, you, you know, my copies are signed by myself that I send out. Or if you can get it off the usual places, you know, bookshops and online sellers, they, it should be in stock in most of those places as well. Well, I think it's always better to buy directly from the author or the publisher, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that, that's nice. I, you know, and it's, I can personalize it as well, put to somebody or whatever. You yeah, know? that is nice. Yeah. Yeah. The Druid yeah. Garden. I really enjoyed the book and I love the illustrations. You mentioned the illustrator Elena earlier, but um, yeah, there's, they're just beautiful drawings and it's a comprehensive gardening guide as well as some of the like druidic philosophy and you just get deep into some of these like plants in the back too of um, offering a profile of these plants. So I definitely recommend it. It's very thorough. Yeah. I like that. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I put a lot of work into it. It took me about three years to, to write that. Yeah. But, wow. um, so I, yeah, it's really nice of you to say that. That's great that you find it actually, you know, useful. And I love interesting, it. Interesting. Yeah. You, know? yeah, you did great. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been, yeah, thank it's you been so much fun. For, yeah, you know? it was really nice chatting with you. And I'm going to come visit sometime when those strawberry <laughs> trees are blooming. <laughs> I'm just going to show up at your door. <laughs> yeah, come, down, come down to uh, to Kalani. There's, there's loads of them growing around there. Okay. Yeah, in, the, in the national park. I can show, I could, wow. if you come, I can actually take you and go and see some. What? In month. The, well, they're uh, well, a long time, right? Yeah. It's an evergreen and they, you know, but I mean, the best time to visit Ireland, I'd say, is probably between, between March and October. Okay, yeah. great. I'm there. Yeah, of course, <laughs> summertime is really busy, you know, yeah. so I would say if you don't want crowds, come in like March, April, or okay. come in September or, or October. Well, cool. if we're ever allowed to travel again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it was really nice. Again, thanks so much, Luke. And we'll talk to you Thank later. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye.